Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. So the, a former director of Las Abejas was assassinated in Pantalo in early July. And the reason was because he was denouncing the widespread operation in that region of the highlands and the indigenous communities of criminal groups uh, linked to drug trafficking cartels. Today on American Indian Airwaves, a one-hour exclusive interview on the rise of organized crime and how criminal violence is impacting indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. We'll speak with Richard Stoller Shok, who just returned back from Chiapas, Mexico, as he explains the rise of organized criminal violence, including the Sinaloa Cartel, the assassinations of indigenous peoples, and how indigenous peoples are organizing in order to protect themselves from the organized criminal violence and more. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, a one-hour special where we go to Chiapas, Mexico. There, the territorial divisions between the major drug cartels have broken down, resulting in open warfare which has spread throughout the region of Chiapas, Mexico. Up until recently, Chiapas has been relatively free from cartel violence. Now the criminal organizations have figured out that they can infiltrate municipal-level politics, run local candidates tolerant of their operations, and heavily fund those campaigns via through intimidation or killing the other candidates and gain control at the ground level. The violence in the highlands regions of Chiapas around the communities of Chenaloa and Pantaloa is intense with approximately 3,000 displaced indigenous peoples. There has been very little media coverage due to the risk and fear of cartel violence possibly maiming or killing journalists. Our guest for the hour just returned back from Chiapas, Mexico. Richard Stoller Schulk is professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University and works for the schools of Chiapas. He's a longtime academic activist and he just returned from Chiapas, Mexico. This is Richard Stoller Schulk providing us an update of what he experienced in the escalating rise of organized violence perpetrated against the indigenous peoples of Chiapas, Mexico. Um, I was in Chiapas just for a week in southern Mexico in late June, and um, things were starting to intensify in terms of levels of conflict, and it's only gotten worse uh, since I left in uh, July and into August. So when I was there, there were a lot of reports of growing levels of conflict, 
in the highlands of Chiapas, particularly in the two municipalities of Pantalo and Chenalo, uh, which are primarily Tzotzil indigenous uh, regions. And it was, um, there were armed shootouts in that region, and this is pretty unusual because Chiapas has been uh, relatively at peace uh, for a while now. So um, it became clear as events unfolded what was going on. After the time that I was there, in July, a former director of Las Abejas, the indigenous pacifist organization in the highlands that um, is supportive of the Zapatista autonomy cause, but because they're a pacifist group, they're not directly part of that, of the Zapatista uh, movement. Uh, Las Abejas is the, the group that suffered the Acteal massacre in 1997 at the hands of pro-government paramilitaries when 45 Tzotzil men, women, and children were killed. So the, a former director of Las Abejas was assassinated in Pantalo in early July. Um, and the reason was because he was denouncing the widespread operation in that uh, region of the highlands and the indigenous communities of uh, criminal groups uh, linked to drug trafficking cartels. And uh, so then it became clear through a series of other events that this was not an isolated instance. In July, also, a boss of the Sinaloa cartel, a drug cartel that has been based in the northwest of Mexico, uh, was killed in Tuxtla, the state capital of Chiapas. And that seems to be part of uh, what appears to be a growing turf war between the two major drug cartels in uh, Mexico. What's different about this now is that the cartels seem to have kind of divided up the turf in the state of Chiapas in a stable fashion up until now. But I guess that truce has broken down. So they're in open war with each other. And the other thing that's different is that the criminal organizations have learned how to infiltrate municipal level governments and um, sponsor candidates in mayoral campaigns who will protect their uh, criminal operations. Um, and then the criminal organizations use that to establish a sort of foothold for drug trafficking and other um, uh, crime. And they don't hesitate to assassinate anyone who gets in their way. Uh, for example, Simon Pedro Perez Lopez, this former director of Las Abejas, was a victim of that. The uh, parish priest of Simo Jovel in the Highlands, uh, Padre Marcelo Perez, has also been under threat and is uh, receiving uh, protection. So escalating levels of uh, violence um, as part of this larger phenomenon of narco-politics uh, that is really um, doing tremendous damage throughout Mexico and is now uh, harming in particular some of the indigenous communities in Chiapas. Richard, why don't you explain to us the situation behind the indigenous justice prosecutor for the Chiapas Highlands region, Gerardo yes. Perez Gomez, was in charge of the investigation of the recent acts of violence in the municipality in Pantelo. The, Pantelo the indigenous, was shot uh -huh. and killed and murdered. Why don't you explain that for us, please? Uh-huh. So that's kind of more of the same. Um, this is the indigenous prosecutor who would have been investigating the criminal activities, the drug trafficking, et cetera, in that region. And um, the fact that the prosecutor could be, you know, blatantly assassinated in such a public manner in uh, early August 
uh, was more of an example of how uh, the uh, cartels, the criminal organizations, are operating really with impunity and clearly with complicity of the state. Because since the levels of violence started to escalate in that uh, highland region of Chiapas, the federal government in Mexico sent in units of the military and of the newly militarized National Guard unit that the current president of Mexico, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, created. So those heavily armed federal uh, troops and uh, and National Guard went into the region, but they've done nothing to stop the criminal organizations. Clearly, they are kind of looking the other way. And meanwhile, the violence escalates. And there, uh, last I heard, something like over 3,000 displaced people among the indigenous communities of those municipalities in that um, uh, region who are fleeing from this violence. And in desperation, some of the local indigenous people in that region uh, formed their own armed group, a self-defense group, which they're calling El Machete, to try to directly deal with the criminal organizations and with the state security forces that they uh, feel are at best in complicity and at worst part of the problem um, of the uh, criminal violence that is escalating in the region. So it's you know, sort of an, an act of, of desperation and it shows the kind of breakdown of any kind of uh, rule of law. And this is, again, not exclusive to Chiapas, uh, but something that is happening in, in many places. Um, and the, the state is in complicity with the criminal organizations, but also in complicity with global capital, the transnational uh, interests that want to displace people, um, many indigenous communities in particular, from areas where there might be lucrative investments in mining and other extractive industries. So it's sort of this kind of cross-section of the criminal organizations, uh, the um, transnational corporations, and the Mexican state kind of all operating in uh, complicity to one degree or another and leading to escalating levels of uh, violence in the region and then the local communities either fleeing or in some cases forming their own uh, self-defense groups, armed self-defense groups like this group, El Machete. Richard, how is that manifested in the sense of the new president, the state of Mexico in relationship to the transnational corporations? People might not understand especially extraction industries within that part of the world why don't you unpack that for us sure um the um current president of mexico amlo as he's known uh was elected in a landslide election uh in 2018 the uh pan party uh of the kind of conservative um uh, catholic uh, orientation had been kind of discredited because they were associated with the escalating levels of violence when former President Calderon launched the war on drugs. So they did not run a very strong campaign. And then the PRI that had controlled Mexico for most of the last century was uh, known as corrupt and increasingly uh, repressive, and they had lost a lot of credibility. Uh, so AMLO presented himself as a kind of fresh face with a sort of populist image, and some of his discourse even sounded progressive. But the problem with populists is that they really are all about themselves and a small group of elites, and they will adjust their discourse to whatever wins votes and wins supporters. So, for example, AMLO claimed when he was on the campaign trail that he was against the model known as neoliberalism, 
the economic model of opening up the economy to the free market forces of global capital. And he continues to say that in his rhetoric, the president of Mexico, and yet his policies have been actively promoting and welcoming the largest of the so-called mega projects, huge investment infrastructure and extractive industry projects. One example of that is the the misnamed Maya train project, uh, which would run a train right through uh, many Maya indigenous communities all the way from Chiapas up to the Yucatan Peninsula, supposedly for eco-tourist development, uh, but it would have a devastating effect on communities and most of the indigenous people have manifested themselves in opposition. Another big project also specifically going through many indigenous areas, the state of Oaxaca, which is just to the west of uh, Chiapas and also has a very high concentration of indigenous people, has a, a narrow um, isthmus, a, um, a narrowing of land uh, known as the Tehuantepec Isthmus. Um, and the, the mega project there is called the Trans-Isthmian Corridor, uh, which would involve a uh, high-speed train, deep water port, there are already um, these wind energy farms uh, being constructed throughout the region. And that's a region where the indigenous people have been very actively opposing and many have lost their lives in peaceful demonstrations against these mega projects and then they find themselves assassinated for their political uh, resistance. So these are examples of a couple of the very large projects that are sort of the pet projects of AMLO, the president of Mexico. Um, another is the uh, the so-called uh, Integral Program for Morelos, a state in the more central part of uh, Mexico. Again, it would affect many indigenous communities. There's an aqueduct project that predates the current administration in Yaqui territory in the northwest of, uh, of Mexico. And AMLO is just going full speed ahead to promote those things. Under international law, uh, it is a legal requirement for consultation with prior, it's called free, prior, and informed uh, consent of indigenous communities before any project for so-called development can take place on their historic territories. And AMLO has just made a sham of the consultation project. And this is, there's a long history, and this is not just in Mexico, we know this in the United States too, of the government co-opting and manipulating um, so-called indigenous leaders, uh, people who are kind of in league with the government to divide the, uh, the population, the indigenous communities, and then claiming that they are representing the will of the indigenous community. So there have been a number of these sham consultations which have been uh, widely denounced by indigenous communities, by the National Indigenous Congress, by the uh, Zapatistas, uh, as a fraud and making a mockery of international law and indigenous rights. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's speaking on the territorial divisions between the major cartels breaking down and open warfare, which has spread into the Chiapas, Mexico region, and how it's impacting indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. Richard, uh, in talking about uh, these projects in different regions down there, is there any link between the state and the destabilization of the cartels that have led to this, this recent bout of systemic violence? 
Well, um, the whole subject of the, the cartels is a kind of shadowy topic where information is, is incomplete and journalists who attempt to do investigative reporting on the subject often wind up themselves assassinated or flee for their lives. So the information is incomplete is the best thing that we can say. One thing that I would say is that the term cartel or you know, drug cartel is a little bit of a misnomer because really um, drugs are only a small part of what are becoming increasingly diversified operations of these criminal organizations. So the local criminal organizations are tied into transnational networks. Drug trafficking is one part of what they do, but they earn probably more of their revenues uh, from kidnapping, extortion, human trafficking, arms trafficking, and most of the arms, by the way, come from the United States, um, which uh, the Mexican government now has a lawsuit <laughs> against uh, the United States for its role in contributing to the violence in Mexico. So the... the um, the exact nature and the lay of the land of the criminal organizations and the exact connection with the state is a little bit murky, but it's clear that there is a connection. And just to take one specific example where some details have trickled out, in the state of Guerrero, uh, there was a rural teacher's college in a little community called Ayotzinapa. It was mostly indigenous teacher trainees uh, from small indigenous communities throughout the state. Um, and uh, these rural normal schools or teachers training colleges have a reputation in Mexico for um, being feisty, politically active, critical of the governments of the day, and training indigenous, a uh, new generation of indigenous uh, leaders and kind of uh, awakening consciousness of, of rights in the communities. So they've always been sort of in the gun sights of the governments, whichever government is in, in power in Mexico. So anyway, um, in 2016, uh, there was a demonstration incident where the students from that teacher's college were uh, uh, mobilizing for a, a demonstration, and they were um, attacked by supposedly drug traffickers, but it turned out that the um, uh, state police and probably the federal military as well were working together with the drug traffickers, and 43 students from that teacher's college were disappeared, forcibly disappeared and never heard from again. Um, the families are still uh, demanding justice, demanding a real investigation. The government has been covering up by doing sham investigations. Outside forensic experts have come in, and they're have been a few instances of some remains being found. Uh, but that's just one tiny illustration of probably what's the tip of the iceberg of state collaboration uh, with national and transnational criminal activities. Um, so some people have gone so far as to characterize Mexico as a narco state. That might be a little bit too simplistic. Um, but in any case, there's clearly such interpenetration of these criminal networks and the state um, that we can't think about politics in Mexico without thinking about criminal activity. You mentioned approximately 3,000 in people being displaced, and to use the military parlance, um, collateral damage. Have we seen any um, uh, victims outside of the people that we've mentioned so far that have been assassinated, um, and, you know, and often in war times, right, women and children are, quote-unquote, um, killed as collateral damage in warfare. So are, are there additional victims, if you will, given the recent spate of uh, escalated violence in the area? 
Sure. Um, there are many victims in, in many ways, and the term collateral damage, of course, is a euphemism that the military uses to, uh, and governments use to try to deny any responsibility even when they have a hand in, um, in creating the conditions for the violence. Um, so very often, the uh, targeting of civilian populations uh, is used to try to terrorize a wider group of civilian populations and get them to flee, to force them off the land. So even if not everyone is killed, a few symbolic killings and you know, uh, gunfire and, uh, and threats might be enough to displace a lot of people. And this serves the interests of the government that wants to control for counterinsurgency purposes, the transnational corporations that want to control for investment purposes. But another example of the escalating level of violence that you know, really couldn't be considered just collateral is that Mexico just had midterm elections in June of this year throughout the country. Uh, there were many, many positions up for, for contest in the election. And in the course of that electoral campaign, over 90 politicians were assassinated. It was a record level of electoral violence. And, you know, for the most part, it seems that it was anyone who was standing up and speaking out against this sort of narco-state um, criminal uh, machinery um, who uh, wound up getting assassinated. And not everyone running for office had to be assassinated to send the message to everybody else um, that you better get out of the way, uh, better not speak up. And so um, sometimes it's a little hard to tell exactly who the victims are. Uh, it's interesting that to deflect attention, AMLO, the current president of Mexico, uh, recently um, announced that his government was going to promote a kind of referendum, a national consultation on whether political criminals of the past should be put on trial. It was clear that this was targeting ex-presidents from other political parties. The consultation was very vaguely worded and seemed to be just focused on uh, the trial for corruption of former presidents. Uh, but the Zapatistas and the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico uh, surprised everyone by saying, yes, we too support participation in a consultation, but it needs to be a much broader consultation. The focus needs to be on victims of political uh, violence and criminal violence throughout the country. We need to put the whole political apparatus on trial. Um, and we're not going to do the kind of sham consultation through representatives that the government has done uh, for launching their mega projects. But in the Zapatista communities, we're going to go community by community, call assemblies. The Zapatista model is to have uh, really a kind of radical democracy, participatory consultations, and not sham representation. Um, so, um, you know, kind of comes back to uh, this question of accountability. There is rampant impunity of the elites, and that includes the criminal and political elites, and they sort of shade into each other. Um, and the alternative model that many indigenous communities, in particular the Zapatistas, have been championing is you need to be held accountable to the communities. And even this armed self-defense group, El Machete, that sprung up in Chiapas, is sort of a reflection of that uh, mentality. If the government can't take care of the problems, then people have to autonomously organize themselves and do what needs to be done. So it's kind of autonomy in defense of communities uh, in the wake of this rampant, unpunished violence, as opposed to 
the government that pretends to be doing something but is actually collaborating with the criminal organizations. In, Richard, in, in listening to you, um, how much of this kind of unchecked, rampant, uh, recent violence has harmed or destabilized and altered the work of the EZLN and indigenous peoples throughout the region? Has it reached a point where the the work, the sacrifice, and the efforts put forth to create this uh, indigenous uh, autonomy um, as they have self-defined and self-determined, has that been destabilized and is it threatening it in very profound ways? Uh-huh. Um, well, um, uh, I mentioned before the assassination of this uh, former leader of, of Las Abejas, right. um, and the massacre in 97 that took place that um, targeted the members of Las Abejas because of their sympathies with the, uh, the Zapatistas, that was carried out by pro-government paramilitaries. The government has used paramilitaries to attack Zapatista communities, uh, to try to weaken the movement, to divide indigenous peoples against each other around land disputes. Um, and the paramilitaries were really sort of the forerunners of these local criminal organizations that are now wreaking havoc in the highlands of Chiapas and that are connected to the transnational criminal organizations. Um, so I know it, it gets kind of murky, but this wave of uh, criminal state violence has its origins in the government's counterinsurgency operations that targeted the Zapatistas going back to the early years of the foundation of the, the Zapatista movement. Um, and uh, there are still those paramilitary groups operating. Uh, for example, there's a community uh, over uh, toward the jungle region east of the, the highlands called Nuevo San Gregorio, uh, where the government has manipulated divisions between Zapatistas and non-Zapatista indigenous people to threaten the indigenous people to try to drive them off their land and implicitly threaten uh, or uh, promise to recognize, give official recognition to the non-Zapatistas in their violent attempt to claim this land. Um, and so the government stirs up these conflicts and then tries to claim, well, it's just you know, intercommunal uh, violence and we need to send in more military to uh, placate the situation. Um, before you were asking about kind of numbers of, of people affected directly by the violence that is supposedly called collateral damage, in uh, just this month, the mayor and the entire city council of uh, Pantelo, uh, where this escalation of violence has most recently uh, occurred, finally resigned, uh, and they were forced to resign because the self-defense group El Machete was saying, you know, we're going to seek out and, uh, you know, uh, identify all of the criminals. And it turns out that the mayor's husband was linked to the criminal organizations and they were deeply entwined in this. Um, and in that municipality of Pantalo, there have been over 200 murders and forced disappearances uh, just in the context of this recent escalation of, uh, of violence. So the Zapatistas are both directly and indirectly affected by all this. Um, it's interesting that uh, none of this has been in the news, and usually, the, at least not the mainstream, um, you know, international or U.S. news. Uh, usually when there's an election, that sort of makes international news, and there was some reporting of the midterm elections, but it was all about who won how many seats from which party, and not about the fact that there were record levels of violence and assassinations in the context of this last election campaign. 
Uh, the Zapatistas have always tried to raise awareness, including outside awareness and solidarity, through uh, dramatic, symbolic actions. They've been very creative about this. Um, and so one of the things that they've done, especially since they've teamed up now with the National Indigenous Congress, that um, uh, groups indigenous people from all over the country, they did uh, a recent kind of outreach by announcing they were going to do a tour of Europe uh, of the, you know, sort of uh, you know, 500 years after the European invasion, they were sort of facetiously saying, well, we're going to invade Europe by um, going on a speaking tour um, and uh, making connections with solidarity groups throughout Europe. And so they sort of, um, you know, used the, the language of an invasion. They said, uh, you know, first we're going to have our maritime divisions, and they, they got this leaky old boat and, and, and uh, sailed across the Atlantic to uh, to go to Europe, and then they said, well, now we have our airborne division, <laughs> and they took the flights to, <laughs> to Europe, and they've been on this uh, speaking tour, um, which has been really very little reported in the United States, but it's made an impact in, um, in Europe, where people seem to pay more attention to indigenous issues in, in Mexico. Um, and the Mexican government, the AMLO administration, was, uh, you know, uh, very much taken aback by this initiative and didn't want it to get a lot of publicity. So when a bunch of the indigenous people from Chiapas went to Mexico City to apply for their passports to go on the, uh, the airborne division to, uh, to old Europe, uh, they were told, no, you can't, uh, we're not giving you passports, your papers aren't in order. And the, um, uh, the foreign ministry described the Zapatista delegation as extemporaneous, uh, meaning that they're sort of inconvenient people, not following the established procedures, basically not knowing their place. And the Zapatistas have proudly taken up that label. They said, yes, we are the extemporaneous people. <laughs> we are doing things our way, and we're not going to play by your rules anymore. Um, and the government was embarrassed and finally had to issue passports and some kind of international pressure, and off they went in there on their tour. So the, the Zapatistas uh, have confronted the state and paramilitary violence uh, with mostly nonviolent political and symbolic actions to raise awareness and to try to build solidarity connections because that's their model. And that was Professor Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He recently returned from Chiapas, Mexico, and he was speaking on the escalated organized criminal violence spreading into Chiapas, Mexico, and its impact on indigenous peoples throughout the region. That concludes part one of this two-part interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with part two.
song the Zapatista National Anthem here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second segment of today's program, we hear part two of our interview with Richard Stuller Schulk, Professor of Political Science at Eastern Michigan University. He recently returned from Chiapas, Mexico, and he's speaking on the escalated organized criminal violence spreading into Chiapas and its impact on indigenous peoples throughout the region. And now part two of the escalated organized criminal violence and its impact on indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. Richard, you mentioned the aspect of the Mexican state and this notion of divide and conquer, whether in the municipalities, whether in the state, or whether in the whole national government of Mexico. Talk about this immunization of imperialism, of the nationalist medical opportunism, and these vaccines and COVID-19. Did you see any of this? And then what are the conditions on the ground concerned with COVID-19? Uh-huh. Well, obviously, COVID is having a, a terrible impact everywhere and a differential impact, of course, on different communities. You see that in the United States where people of color, low-income people, uh, people who have to be frontline workers for economic reasons are suffering disproportionately. Um, and on a global scale, uh, while countries like the United States are hoarding vaccines many more times the number of doses needed for the entire population and you know, preparing for a third dose, uh, the U.S. is reluctant to share with other parts of the world that are desperately in need and haven't had even, you know, large portions of the population that haven't even had their first dose. Um, in the case of Mexico, it's a little hard to tell um, how widespread COVID is. Um, the government uh, doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of keeping statistics. AMLO, the populist uh, president, has been kind of Trump-like or Bolsonaro-like in, you know, proudly walking around without a mask and uh, poo-pooing the uh, importance of, uh, of COVID from the beginning. Uh, so it doesn't seem to have been a major focus of government public policy. Mexico City is one of the world's larger cities, and it's very densely populated. So it seems that there are uh, high levels of contagion in Mexico City, but again, there aren't any reliable statistics. Uh, many of the indigenous regions are more geographically dispersed. The Zapatistas have been very careful in their communities in shutting down access to their communities. They don't want people coming in and out. They want to limit the possibility of contagion. A couple of us from this trip uh, went out to one of the new Caracoles, one of the Zapatista governing centers in the uh, jungle region, and it was basically just kind of a skeleton crew staffing the, <laughs> the gates. And they said, you know, we're not uh, allowing anyone to come in now because of the, uh, the pandemic. We're being very careful and not having people go around in the, the communities. Uh, when I was in San Cristobal, the kind of tourist center in, uh, in Chiapas, uh, people said that there didn't seem to be widespread at that time, uh, a couple of months ago, outbreaks of, of COVID there. But... You know, with all the tourists coming and going and many of them not wearing masks and the unknown vaccination status, I would anticipate that if it's not already a problem, that it's going to become more widespread. And of course, people who don't have the luxury of working for home, from home or staying home um, for survival reasons have to be out in public, in the marketplace, et cetera, 
um, are more um, vulnerable and at risk, and that's the case for many indigenous people in San Cristobal. Many indigenous people live in the, the kind of shantytown peripheral communities uh, outside of the, the town. Many work in public places such as the public marketplace or selling things on the streets. Um, so uh, it's a more uh, kind of at-risk population. Richard, you mentioned the fact that these Zapatistas went to Europe. Many of our listeners might forget about the expedition to Europe. They said in a, in a statement that the explanation for the expedition to those lands, we think we know that we are not the only one to struggle, that we are not the only ones to see what is happening and what will happen. Our corner of the world is small geographically of struggle of life. We are looking for other corners and we want to learn from them. And saying that no to imposition, shouting yes to life, it is not new, it is true. We could go back five centuries and the same stories. Explain to us about the recent events in Europe and this 500 years of, not of two cultures colliding, but of the invasion from this massive uh, people from Europe. Talk about that, please. Sure. That language may sound a little unfamiliar to many people who are accustomed to a different political vocabulary, but the Zapatistas have been trying to encourage all of us to think outside the box and to take a wider historical view. When the Zapatista movement first emerged publicly on January 1st, 1994, they had already been organizing as a Zapatista movement for some 10 years before that, and really indigenous people had been resisting for 500 years before that. So what many indigenous people in Mexico and other places have been saying is, we were never conquered. Um, we have been in continuous resistance, and we make inroads, we make gains, we find autonomous spaces, we organize in those spaces. So this idea that there was you know, one single invasion and a conquest and, and it's all over, and the indigenous people then either disappeared or became assimilated, those are ideas that the Zapatistas have been rejecting and resisting. Um, I think that statement that you quoted is an indication of how the Zapatistas have really had for a small group of people in a remote corner of southeast Mexico a tremendous disproportionate impact on thinking and models of political and social organizing really all over the world, which has been uh, quite impressive, sort of sidestepping the conventional notion of politics as coming from above and going through uh, you know, elected governing officials who are often self-serving. The Zapatistas like to say that they are organizing from below and to the left. Um, so a grassroots progressive movement. And unlike the sort of traditional um, uh, left of many parts of, of Latin America, the historic um, kind of model of armed revolutionary organizers trying to take state power. The Zapatistas have always said, no, we have a different understanding of what power is and where it comes from. Power comes from organizing in your community, understanding your roots, and making your own way. So they're not trying to impose a party line on anybody else on how to organize or what organizations to join. They're trying to inspire and encourage and call upon um, movements everywhere who share their human values 
uh, to organize themselves in their own ways. Uh, the Zapatistas have a, a saying, we uh, walk along while we ask along the way, basically. Uh, in other words, there isn't a sort of pre-made roadmap, but we continue to walk and ask. Uh, when they did, when the Zapatistas did what they called uh, their other campaign uh, in 2005-2006 in the run-up to Mexico's conventional electoral campaign, the presidential election campaign in 2006, the Zapatistas sort of said, you know, another campaign, another way of thinking about campaigning is going to people and listening to them, not making promises that you're then going to forget after the election, but traveling around the country, hearing people's needs and struggles, trying to uh, be a sort of catalyst for organizing and solidarity and connections. And it's as a result of that approach that the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico, composed of some 60-plus indigenous nations, identity groups in the country, came together, um, not as a Zapatista organization, but inspired by the Zapatista movement. And uh, the Zapatistas have been increasingly looking for points of connection. And similarly, the Zapatistas find that there are struggles in Europe, in the United States, elsewhere, that reflect the same kinds of values of uh, justice against uh, oppressive uh, political and economic structures. And they're happy to meet with, uh, organize in parallel with, in solidarity with um, any of these groups. Very different way of thinking about uh, politics from the way we've been conditioned to thinking about it in, say, the United States. Richard, in, in listening um, to everything you've been sharing with us, you, you know, we've been talking about indigenous peoples, neoliberalism, state violence, um, the violence of, quote unquote, the cartels. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't discussed directly and is um, the impact on the land and the water and, and everything that the land and the water culturally provides uh, for indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas. So in coming back to this recent uh, escalated violence throughout the region, are we seeing any harm to the to land or water through, say, you know, military tactics of use scorching the earth, right, to flush quote unquote the enemies out or the targets out. Are we so are we, are we seeing any kind of in ecological or environmental adversities? Sure. Once people are displaced from the land, then it's often a kind of preliminary operation for large-scale investments that have devastating environmental impact on land and territory and uh, um, nature, uh, whether it's agribusiness um, that it destroys uh, the land, brings in chemicals, etc., uh, or mining, uh, dumping the uh, mining runoff and the chemicals that are used to process the ore into uh, river systems, um, even something that is sometimes considered a sort of green energy source like wind energy, when you pack in uh, to an area enormous, uh, just um, uh, many, many, many uh, acres of kind of wind farms and clear everything else off the land, that too has a devastating environmental impact. It kills birds. The oil that's used to lubricate these giant windmills drops into the soil. You've displaced fishing communities, and they then have to go into other kinds of activities that are uh, in environmentally damaging out of necessity. We see this in many places, not just in Chiapas, in the northwest of Mexico and Yaqui territory. The aqueduct to divert water from the Yaqui River 
for industry in other parts of, of Sinaloa uh, would not only devastate the, the local community and displace people, but also the industrial runoff and so forth would have terrible impact on land and sustainability. Um, the Mayan train and all the spin-off activities of so-called ecotourism, uh, despite the eco-prefix, many indigenous communities say that there's nothing ecological about it, that quite the contrary, that just bringing in a lot of outsiders will cut back more forest and trample on the, um, the uh, local communities that have been working for thousands of years to protect and live in harmony with the environment. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's speaking on the territorial divisions between the major cartels breaking down and open warfare, which is spread into the Chiapas, Mexico region, and how it's impacting indigenous peoples throughout Chiapas, Mexico. And now back to the interview. So the whole idea that somehow the government with its, uh, you know, so-called development schemes in cahoots with global uh, capital and uh, enormous uh, uh, corporations knows better about the environment and can decide what's ecological and what's a, a, a good form of development as opposed to indigenous people who for thousands or tens of thousands of years um, have uh, accumulated expertise in managing uh, land and living in harmony with the land. I mean, it's insulting and it's based fundamentally on uh, a racist conception um, of the nation state. Um, so, um, and we see this throughout Latin America. We can think of the Brazilian Amazon too, and the indigenous people are being displaced so that the, uh, the Amazon forest, the lungs of the world, can be cut down because a tree only acquires market value once it's cut down and turned into lumber and put on a ship, a container. Um, and um, so, uh, and then agribusiness comes in, ma uh, massive soybean and other plantations in that region and uh, devastates the, uh, the environment. So time and again, uh, we see that um, ignoring the wisdom and the alternative knowledge of indigenous communities is really coming at our peril. And of course, uh, you know, now we may be uh, in this headlong rush to destroy the entire planet with climate change that it seems in some ways uh, at a kind of irreversible point. Uh, so now more than ever, we desperately need this knowledge that is being devalued uh, and even violently attacked of indigenous communities about how we can live uh, together with plants and animals and rivers and trees on this planet. Richard, the fact that the Zapatismo changed the terrain of the struggle, the terrain of how people look at indigenous peoples, and this particular framework of anti-capitalist projects and, and the weaving of transnational community of all the ex- Temporaneous, based on walking by asking questions, but also the deep meaning of mobilization, of the realization of the new outlook and the focus of history, number one, but secondly, a new powerful force that unleashed in the international as well as the national nation states whether it be North America, South America, Central America, if you will. But that major force about left-leaning from below 
that approach, not only political approach, but cultural approach, expressed itself in many of the stories that we covered here at American Indian Airways, past discussions with yourself, talk about the cultural aspect, how well this is opening a new world for all of us to live in. Talk about that, please. Sure. Um, as you said, I think that this whole idea of asking questions while walking implies a kind of um, humility about our fellow human beings and our relationship with others and uh, with nature rather than this kind of uh, much more Western cosmovision of so-called progress and development that we are going to conquer nature and conquer other people and take things. Um, and the concept of community, indigenous people uh, in many parts of the world have placed a very high value on community. And in a way, that notion of community is a kind of power, but it's not power over someone else. It's more like empowerment by being together, working together, and building consensus. Um, so the Zapatista model of autonomy is very decentralized. In small villages throughout Chiapas, um, everybody can get together in person in these sort of direct participatory democratic meetings and, and encounters and have discussions face to face. And it may take a very long time to reach a consensus, but that consensus gives a kind of power or solidity um, to the value of the collective and of the community. Whereas power in the more kind of conventional state-centered view uh, is you know, who has the most guns and who has the most capital um, and how can we use that to kind of do violence to others and take and accumulate and concentrate the things that a small group of people want. Um, so these are really diametrically opposed views uh, of what is power itself. Uh, so the, the Zapatistas, I think, um, don't see power as coming from violence, but rather power as coming from the building of community, that long, slow process of kind of uh, building up a consensus around the collective needs uh, rather than prioritizing the needs of the few over the needs of the many. Uh, so if we're going to survive on this planet, I think we need to get away from the selfish conception uh, of power, of development, of uh, how to organize ourselves politically. Um, and I think the Zapatistas have this um, uh, have a, a, a motto that um, is on signs outside of some of their governing centers, their caracoles, that says, um, "Everything for everyone, nothing for us." Um, and uh, they also say, uh, in the Zapatista communities, the people are in charge and the government obeys. Kind of inverting this hierarchical notion of power uh, in order to really emphasize not the individual, not some um, flamboyant personality like AMLO, the president of Mexico, uh, but rather the power that comes from the community. When the Zapatistas, uh, to try to sort of ironically play with this idea of the government's view of power and elections and so forth, when during the, uh, the last election, the Zapatistas teamed up with the National Indigenous Congress and said, OK, you're having an election? Fine, we'll run a candidate too an indigenous woman, uh, except that she's not running to win the presidency. She's running to wake people up and talk about the issues that your politicians aren't talking about. Uh, and so she was 
um, a Nahuatl woman from the state of Jalisco, a traditional healer, uh, and that was also symbolic, sort of politics as healing, um, healing the earth, healing the communities that have been torn apart. Um, and uh, so um, the, by the government's rules, she wasn't even uh, able to uh, acquire the number of signatures necessary to appear on the, uh, the ballot in the federal elections because you had to have a certain cell phone app and you had to have a cell phone connection to be able to register yourself and sign up to sign the petition, et cetera. Obviously, the rules were rigged. And the Zapatista said, fine, uh, those aren't our rules. She's going to tour the country anyway and meet with communities, just like the Zapatistas are now meeting with people in struggle all over Europe and making those kind of person-to-person -person, um, connections uh, to build that different model of empowerment. And when the you know, kind of pro-government people dismissed the whole phenomenon of Marichui, the indigenous uh, candidate slash non-candidate in the elections, as, you know, look, she didn't even get the signature, she didn't get on the ballot, so, you know, that was a failure of the Zapatistas and other sympathizers in the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico said, no, on the contrary, uh, she won. Uh, the Marichui effect. Uh, she won the uh, the ability to raise consciousness, bring people together in ways that are really changing the whole political game. Um, so the Zapatistas are are never um, willing to get suckered into playing the game as it's been established by the powers that be since the time of the European invasion. Um, they are always questioning. Uh, those rules, those assumptions, and the values behind them. And take away all this conversation, what do you want the North American or the people that listen to us, what do you want that message to the our listeners? I think um, it would be important for people to try to pay attention to other struggles that might not be in our own immediate spheres. Um, and that could be within our own cities, towns, states, um, not necessarily in other countries or other cultures or other communities, but just to sort of look around and realize that we're in many ways all in this together, um, that everyone uh, can benefit collectively from a more just world. And rather than thinking in us-them terms, we need to be thinking in these more collectivist terms um, about common core values of humanity. I think that that's really what it uh, comes down to. And so in the process, uh, we can uh, learn and take inspiration from the struggles of indigenous people in Mexico and other places. And we can also look around us in our own realms um, and see what are we not seeing? What does the government want to suppress? Uh, what do the powerful corporations not want us to think critically about? How are they trying to divide us against um, immigrants, against people of other colors, of other countries, et cetera? Um, and you know, who's really benefiting from those divisions as opposed to thinking uh, more collectively about our commonalities? Um, so that sounds kind of abstract, but I think we can latch onto this in any of these micro stories why is there a certain kind of violence going on in a certain place? What's really behind it? Who's benefiting and um, you know, who's losing from that? And what would be an alternative way of organizing ourselves so that we can all live in, uh, in dignity in a more just society? The moment of silence is over. 
And that was Richard Stoller Schulk, professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He was speaking on the recent escalation of organized criminal violence spreading throughout the Chiapas, Mexico region and its impact on indigenous peoples, from local assassinations to over 3,000 displaced peoples. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Professor Richard Stoller Schultz. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio of Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.